0: Um, so, as far as the, the Holy Spirit stories, it can be recent or not recent, but send them to me. A number of you have already. It's awesome. It's really fun to read them. Um, but I want to try and incorporate more stories uh, into that series. So, I want to welcome you. My name's Tony. If we haven't met, uh, it's fun to be with you this morning. Uh, as Aaron said, we're in 1 Samuel. Now, if you haven't been with us, right, for the last, I don't know, year and a half, we've been going through. The Old Testament started in Genesis, so there's a lot going on there, Uh, but maybe just the quick catch up on 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel, uh, you have this guy named Saul that's raised up to be king, but he kind of falls on his face a little bit, and he basically has the kingdom snatched out of his hands, but he doesn't want to give it up. There's this other guy named David who gets anointed to be the future king, but there's a lot of conflict there. Saul is jealous of this guy, and when we get to our chapters today, 24 and 26, you get this sense that Saul is trying to find David and kill him. That's the context we're in. Uh, Saul has this army. David, uh, in chapter 23, has this little ragtag group of disenfranchised people. He's gathered uh, over time. More on that in a bit. But he's basically doing this itinerant existence, going from place to place, hiding from Saul and his army and his spies. Got it? So when we enter chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, uh, David is at this fortress, this place called En Gedi. Now, uh, I think there should be a picture of it. There we go. So, Saul's home base uh, is about 47 miles from Engedi, north and to the west a little bit. So, that's like going from here to, I think it's like Soledad, right? If you walked from here to Soledad or on horseback, not chump change, but you're going from basically a pretty hospitable environment to this. It is wild. There are caves. I remember being there. It is hot. There's like all these little caves you can hide in. It's steep. The Dead Sea is right there. So that's not water you can drink. That's good floating water. The thing is Saul gathers about 300 people or 3,000 troops from all over Israel. And he's going now to search for David in this area. David has about 600 guys, so it's about a five-to-one ratio. So David and his men are woefully unprepared to defend themselves. Now, I want to just, I don't know, maybe just reality test this for a second. So my theory is there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people that when you go on a road trip, they will hold it the entire time and not go to the bathroom, and there's another set of people that stop all the time in order to go to the bathroom. Basically, these are the two types of people that exist in the world. There are stoppers and there are peers. There are, you know, holders and stoppers, and you know who you are. What we learn in this story is that Saul is a stopper. So we get to en Saul's been on this 47-mile journey, and he says, all right, guys, I got to go pee. And he decides, you know what, that cave, that cave is the perfect spot. Just the right amount of shielding from my troops, just the right amount of privacy, you know, you know the spot you're looking for if you are a stopper. It just so happens that the very cave he picks is the very cave where David and his men are hiding. So Saul has 3,000 men. He's going after David, and he ends up peeing in the cave where David's men are hiding. Now, you might be wondering, how could that happen? Wouldn't he see him? I remember just a few weeks ago, we were on a trip just north of Eureka, and there was this cave on the beach And it was incredible how dark caves get when you go in them. Like we had to like 10 feet in, you're on flashlight. Like it, you cannot see. So Saul walks in to this cave. David and his men are in the back and his men whisper to David this. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall be seem good to you. Translated into modern vernacular, dude, literally, the king is caught with his pants down. You literally have the power to win victory, and if you, mount, if you, if you fight him in open battle, you're going to lose 3,000 to 600, right? Five to one. You can do it. God has given you the king into your cave. Into your hands. This is your opportunity to kill him and take the throne. Now, on one level, you see their logic, right? I mean, what are the chances? Seriously. Like, he picked your cave as a urinal. But David's troops also have their own agenda, a little backstory. In 1 Samuel 22, we learn that the reason David is able to raise this little army is because all these people are disenfranchised. A lot of them are in debt. A lot of them are have a criminal record, and they're thinking, well, if I side with the new king, my debts will be canceled, and my criminal record will be expunged. Man, this is my ticket. So now when they see the potential for their gravy train to come into the station, they're like, take out the king. These aren't like neutral observers. To say the least, they have every reason, both financial and criminal, to see David take out Saul. Hearing their whispers, David decides to sort of sneak forward from the rear of the cave to the front of the cave. The text says in 24.4, then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, there's two scenarios here. One, David is like serious ninja style going up while Saul is going pee and like trimming the corner of his robe with a knife. I mean, who knows, right? Like which is probably less likely than the fact that Saul set his robe down, and Saul or David goes over, trims a little piece, and then crawls to the back. Now, you might be wondering, like, why cut a robe? Like, if I just leave, like, a jean jacket, hang it up when I go to the bathroom, and someone cuts a corner, I mean, is David, like, doing a fashion attack? Right, like, oh, what happened to your jacket, you know? No way, right? No, robes are symbolic. Robes are symbolic of authority and power. So when David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, it's a way of symbolically indicating that David has power over Saul's kingdom. Right, so David cuts the robe, and then immediately it says this, David's heart struck him, verse 5. Essentially, David feels guilty, right? And guilt is an emotional signal that we've transgressed, something that we care about, right? David believes at some deep level that God is the one who anoints kings and God is the one who enthrones kings, And in this moment, right, by cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, he's like violating this internal conviction he has. Even symbolically taking the kingdom from Saul, he's kind of like crossing this internal line according to his conscience. Oh, man, I crossed something there. I shouldn't have done that. And as he sneaks back to the corner of the dark cave where his men are waiting, he says this, verse 6. The Lord forbid that, should I, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my, out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not per- t- permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went his way. Right, David lets the men know, hey guys, We can't do this. Even though they whispered, even though he cut the corner of the robe, he's like, guys, we can't do it. I felt really guilty. Even just cutting the corner, you cannot kill him. Now, full disclosure, there's probably some self-interest here too, right? Because if he doesn't kill the Lord's anointed, then he's teaching them also that they should not kill the Lord's anointed when he gets enthroned. Just an aside, Saul finishes his business He grabs his robe with an unknown cut and goes back to his 6,000 or 3,000 men. And presumably, David lets him get far enough away. Maybe Saul goes down or David goes up, but presumably he gets far enough away so that escape is possible. And he shouts to him. Likely, he's like displaying that little cut of the robe. And you can imagine Saul, he's like, and he's kind of squinting, trying to see what's in David's hand. He's like, just coming out of the bathroom, right? He's a little bewildered. He's like, now someone's shouting at me. And he says, is that you, David? Remember, this is the very person he mounted an entire army to come and attack. And now he's shouting out to him from the rocks out in Gedi. And you start to imagine like in the scenario, like, wait, wait, were you just in the cave where I just went to the bathroom? What is going on with my robe? And David says to him in verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And at this, right Saul, he weeps and cries out. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put you, put me into your hands. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. David, you've been good to me. I have not been good to you. Look, I've mounted an army and an attack. On you, He says this confession, and it sounds really beautiful. And then the next thing he does is get on his horse and go back to his throne. And David still hides in the wilderness. His words communicate peace, but David doesn't trust him. He remains in the wilderness. That's a good thing he does, because in two chapters, in chapter 26, Saul again learns of David's location in the wilderness. Saul again gathers his army to go and attack him, even though he just said, you did good, I did evil. Off he goes again. But this time, right? David doesn't wait for the stopper to do his bathroom break. He actually takes the initiative. He sends out spies into Saul's camp. And they report back to David. And David's like, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. Let's sneak into Saul's camp. And there's this guy named Abishai who goes with David. And you have to imagine, Saul's on the ground laying there, and they literally walk up right next to him. And this is verse 8, chapter 26, what Abishai says to David. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. Let me kill him, David. Subtext. And my criminal record, my debt will be expunged. I am ready to do this. For the second time, right, David gets advice before making a decision. And again, David says, verse 11, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Right, and they do. They grab the spear, they grab the water, and they get out of there. And no one hears them. And the text says in verse 11, They were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. There's so much to say here. Let's I'll just say two or three. While robes are symbolic, spears are even more so. So it's not like David's like toothbrush or spear, right? Toothbrush is right there, spear. No, spear. Right? Spear is a symbol of Saul's power and taking it is a symbolic act of taking the throne. But the second point I want you to notice, notice what doesn't happen. David's conscience isn't pricked this time. Last time he cut the corner of the robe, and he's like, oh, I'm so guilty. This time, nothing. He takes the symbol of his power, which is even more than a robe, He feels nothing. And he takes his water. Dude is in the desert. That is his lifeline. He takes his water. David feels nothing. No guilt. No conscience pricking. Also, let's notice, David is way more aggressive here. Last time, he was passive. He was just in the cave. Now he's actually going in to Saul's army to steal stuff. And then I think is the author's way of showing us that David's heart is becoming more calloused. First time he goes in, conscience pricked and he's passive. Second time, conscience isn't pricked and he's way more aggressive. The author is telling us in a literary way David's heart is becoming less sensitive. I think too often we read this and think, wow, David, man, he's so faithful. But in reality, what the author is saying is, be careful how character changes over time. Now again, similar flow, David lets Saul get far, he gets far enough away from Saul this time And we have another shout introduction, similar flow. David shouts out, and Saul says this back to him. Verse 21, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day, behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Has anyone ever been in a situation where someone has wronged you repeatedly and they come back and they're like, I'll never do it again? Think of all the memories that are going through David's mind at this point. Right? Adding Getty. right? When Saul says, oh, I, my bad. But then two chapters later, he's doing the exact same thing again. Fast forward or rewind even more. Before David kills Goliath, he's doing part two part-time jobs. He's a shepherd, and what else does he do? He's a musician for Saul. And what happens? There's a few times when Saul's getting really irritated, and he decides, you know what? I'm going to grab this spear, and what does he do? Throws it at David, who's playing the harp. The very spear that David just took There's a lot of modern psychologists that say that Saul is actually one of the first portrayals of like bipolar disorder in the ancient world. And we don't, we don't have enough info to actually confirm that. But you just have this sense, man, there is something really wrong with Saul. He is really struggling. And yet, he's like wanting David to trust him. I messed up. Return to me. Thankfully, David doesn't. David seems to know at this point that Saul is not a safe person, no matter what he says. So while David allows someone from Saul's camp to come and get the spear, he doesn't trust Saul. He doesn't go back with him. He doesn't return to him because Saul says, I'm sorry. And again, what happens? Saul goes back where? His throne. He doesn't hand over his, throne, or his crown, his robe. He just goes back to his throne, and David stays in the wilderness. And this is actually the last time that David and Saul will interact or see each other. Saul will die on a battlefield before David will ever see him again. Now, you know, what do you do with a story like this or stories like these? You know, as I was thinking about sort of how this applies to our everyday life, one thing in particular stood out to me. It's this. How do we make choices? How do we discern? How do we make decisions? I mean, think about this. David has to make sense of the fact that Saul went to the bathroom in a cave that he was hiding in. Was it a test? Was it a divine opportunity? Was God telling David, this is your chance, or was it just circumstance? How does he make that decision? And when David's men claim they know God's will for him, how does he know if they're right or they're wrong? If they're leading him along God's path or they're leading him astray. Right? The narrator tells us in chapter 26 that God brings a deep sleep on Saul's army. But David doesn't know that. And we presume as the reader, right, that God must have been involved in the PK selection process too, right? I mean, how else is that going to happen? But we're not told. And certainly David wasn't informed. How should he decide? How do you discern? How do you make choices when there's so many unknowns? One really interesting thing about these stories is even how Saul makes choices. Particularly like how he gathers data, right? So Saul is constantly gathering data basically via human espionage. He has informants, the informants tell him where David is, and he's like, all right, I've gathered the data, now I'm going to go. But what's really fascinating is that God has already told Saul what to do, but it doesn't align with what Saul wants. So what Saul keeps doing is gathering more and more data in order to eliminate David When in fact, God has already told Saul through the prophet Samuel, dude, your king ruling, all that stuff is done. Get off the throne. But what does he keep doing? Gathering data, gathering data, gathering data, so that he can eliminate his opposition and basically solidify his plan. Stay on the throne at all costs. Now, one of the things, though, about reading a story like this is we tend to look at Saul and be like, man, what a moron, right? Like, if I was in that position, I would so make better choices. Right? We read these stories like this all the time. The truth is, like, go through human history. Show me how many kings give up power willingly. George Washington, thank you. (laughs) very seldom. The truth is, we read these stories and we think, man, we could have done better. Now, what I want to try and do is give us some handholds. Uh, I'm going to pull from two sources. I'm going to pull from uh, just modern uh, psychological research, and I'm going to pull from sort of biblical paradigms, and I'm going to show how, hopefully, some of these biblical frames will actually address some of the issues that happen in decision making according to all kinds of studies in psychology. So a lot of this comes from a book uh, called Decisive by these authors Heath and Heath. Um, They talk about how there's four different movements to every choice we make. Uh, This should be projected. Uh, The first one is you encounter a choice, right? A choice comes before you. Second one is you analyze your options. right, choice, options, then you make a choice, and then you live with it. All right, essentially those are the four choices that we, or the four steps to a choice. The problem is all kinds of studies show us that we make mistakes at every single one of these points. I'm going to turn to my trusty whiteboard. All right. So the first type is you encounter a choice. The problem is, almost always, our frame is way too narrow, right? So you basically, all you do is focus on the thing you're already focused on. It's called the spotlight effect. So if you've ever been in theater, a spotlight, what it does is it helps you to focus on something on the stage. But what it essentially does is it takes your attention away from everything else. The spotlight effect. So like for David, right? He's in the cave. His guy's saying we should kill him. So what he starts doing is he narrows the frame to kill or not kill. Right? He narrows the choices to two. And this is what we do all the time when we even encounter choices. We limit our options to the options that are most obvious to us. One of the solutions they found in social psychology is called the elimination test. So what you do is you actually eliminate the two choices that you normally think of and you just consider alternatives, right? So for David, kill or not kill? Okay, let's just pretend both of those are off the table. Now what do I do? And then maybe he thinks, I'm not going to take a symbolic symbolic tool, a robe or a spear, and now that's a part of the equation. So what we do is we widen the options by eliminating the choices we perceive. Make sense? Step one. Step two, right, we analyze. We analyze the options that are before you. The problem is, Almost always at this point, you have a confirmation bias. So you do your pro-con list. But it's shaped by all the ideas in your head. So what you tend to do is come up with a list that just reinforces your biases. Right? David, yeah, we shouldn't probably kill him. Why on the pro list? That means they won't kill me later. Right? Confirmation bias. There's, uh, there's this great, or even David's friends are a good example here, right? David, what you should do is you should kill him. Why? My criminal record and my debts are going to be taken away, right? Big pros. Heath and Heath and Decipher write this. It's a great quote. And this is what's slightly terrifying about the confirmation bias. When we want something to be true, we will spotlight the things that support it. And then we draw conclusions from those spotlighted scenes, right? The things we're already focusing on. And we'll congratulate ourselves on a reasoned decision. Oops. We do this all the time. So what they say is what you really got to do is you got to involve other minds, <laughs> right? You got to involve other people so that you can reality test your assumptions with others. If you want to make a good decision, you got to get other people that aren't just yes men or women to actually say, oh, this is what I see. Step three, you choose But the problem with this, almost always, is that what we choose is highly, highly influenced by short-term emotional consequences. So we have a choice, but the problem is we are so shaped by our fears about the present implications, maybe they make us happy, maybe sad, maybe angry. And we're so afraid of how other people are going to respond that the short-term emotional consequence ends up being dominant in our decision-making. Like Saul. He's jealous. He's afraid of David. He's threatened by him. So what does he do? He goes and attacks him because he just wants to get rid of the threat. Get rid of the threat. And then he realizes, after David shouts out, whoa, he's not as bad as I thought. What am I doing? We do this all the time. We do this with anxiety and fear, right? Rather than actually confronting someone who maybe is like really not being pleasant to us. We're like, well, I don't want to do this, right? There's a couple ways to process this. What studies have shown is there's a couple different things. One is to ride the wave of emotion. So often, there's an intense spike in our emotion decision-making. And if you can wait to hear, when it comes down, our emotions change and we make better decisions. You ride the wave, you don't make the decision at the peak, you wait until it gets a little lower. The other principle It's called the 10-10-10 principle. When you're making a decision, in order to attain emotional distance, you wait. You decide, okay, how am I going to feel in 10 minutes if I make this decision? How am I going to feel in 10 months if I make this decision? How am I going to feel in 10 years if I make this decision? And what it does is it pulls you out of that immediate emotional response. Okay? One more. One of the things social psychologists often find also is that we tend to think that we are gonna be, we're rarely going to be wrong. Like we do our pro-con list, we come up and we think, I've rocked it. Like I am so going to nail this. And we underestimate how often we're actually doing the spotlight effect, (laughs) we're confirming our biases, and we're making emotional decisions based on present or really near consequences emotionally. So one of the things they say to do, it's called bookending, but you imagine what is the worst-case scenario that could happen, you imagine the best-case scenario and the most likely scenario, and then you imagine how you got there. So this is the choice, this is likely what's going to happen, this is the worst case, this is the best case, how did I arrive there? And what you do is you pull from all kinds of different parts of your knowledge base in order to make that decision. Kind of makes sense? All right, that's all psychology, decision-making. What I want to do, though, is sort of now wrap this in a biblical, three biblical principles. Because there's actually three biblical principles that I think if we really take seriously, it will address almost every one of these problems. The first is this. Discernment, if we really want to make good choices, it takes place in community. In Romans 12, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And he knows life is complex. Our life is complex. So was theirs. And what he says, he's not writing an individual text to each person in Rome. He's writing to the gathered community and he says to them, test and discern the will of God, right? What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Hey guys, you, together, come together and discern together what god's will is romans 12 2. the problem is we live in a culture that is an announcement culture versus a discernment culture so what we do is we do the spotlight effect we do confirmation bias we assume we're right and then we tell people hey i'm moving or hey i got this job or hey i'm doing this announcement culture that's how we live versus discernment culture where we actually invite people into the process and decide, especially on bigger decisions, together. And this is important. Go back to our stories, right? David's conscience, notice, is not pricked the second time. The first time, did he need others? Well, there's more here, right? Because sometimes community is not helpful. But... In this second instance, first time, his conscience pricks. Second time, it's not. He actually needed other people to speak in and say, dude, what are you doing? You literally did this two chapters ago and felt guilty. Why are you doing it again? Sometimes we need other people. I was just thinking about this just for me, right? Like a few weeks ago, I shared about this retreat I was going on. And I learned I was going to have a roommate. And I shared you, like, my panic at that moment. I was thinking, I'm going to have my own room. I'm going to chill. It's going to be awesome. And then I learned I had a roommate, and I was like, no, you know. And I started going into panic mode, and I, like, got a sleeping bag. I got a, you know, my bivy sack. I got an air mattress. I will, like, I will sleep in a cave at En Gedi if I need to, right? Right? Basing a decision based on what? Short-term emotional consequence. Spotlight effect, confirmation bias. I have all these things happening. It wasn't until I prayed with Ann in that little kitchen, and she's like, you know, Tony, my sense is you really shouldn't bring all that stuff, and you should trust that God is going to provide for you. And I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear, Ann. Right? That's when we analyze and we bring other minds in. It helps us address confirmation bias. Right? We need community. But we do need to, I just want to say this, we do need to pay attention to who we are discerning with. Right? You're discerning with people you respect, people that love you, people that are safe. Right, So if someone is saying to you in your little group, obviously you should do this, Red flag, probably not the best person in your discernment group. If someone is saying so entangled in the issue emotionally that they cannot see clearly, and they're clearly just articulating what they want to you, probably not the most helpful person to have in your group discerning with you. Discernment happens in community, but our internal world matters too. Right? Sometimes communities do really funky things. Consider David again. The people around him, his community, are telling him, kill the dude. Why? Because right? they want to get what they want. But for David, right, his conscience is pricked. Something just doesn't feel right after cutting Saul's robe. Right, and this internal witness is really important. Is it possible that it's just confirmation bias? Yes. Is it possible that our gut is just shaped by our fear of short-term emotional consequences? Yeah, totally. But if our inner world is honored while we involve community in the decision-making process, right, those two together really help address all of the problems. Right? Cuz now we have community plus our internal witness. When there's alignment between the communal and the internal, good things tend to happen. Now, according to the scriptures, the internal world, the internal witness kind of has two different frames. I mean, there's lots, but I want to talk about two. First, it can simply just be our conscience. Right? Paul regularly writes hey, we need to do things that is right according to our conscience or for conscience sake. right? Whether it's obeying authorities or eating certain foods. Hey guys, let your conscience be your guide. Right? Because it's not always super clear. There's not always like a Bible verse you can go to that says, this is what I should do. But it's also important, particularly in the New Testament, that Jesus says, right, the Holy Spirit lives within in us. And actually, the Holy Spirit can guide us internally as well, right? Jesus, before He ascends to the Father, He meets with the disciples this one last night, and He tells them in this final dinner, hey guys, when I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come and live in you. And then He says this, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Right, This Holy Spirit is going to live in us and guide us internally, teaching us all things. So yes, discernment happens in community, but our internal world matters. Why? God has given us a conscience, and the Holy Spirit is living within us, teaching us and guiding us and speaking to us. And if we ignore that, We could be really going down funky roads. Community and the internal world. But we also, there's a third alignment here. Community, internal world, and the scriptures. And actually when all three of these are aligned, you make excellent choices. Paul tells Timothy when he's shaping how he might guide people, he says this, points him back to the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise, navigate life, make choices for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. All things that are connected to choices. And the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? So then the Scriptures also give us then another layer of how we make choices. Right? They make it so that we can do good works. Which flow from what? Good decisions. From discernment. And I guess my question to you is, when you think about your life, maybe in the past or future decisions, and you think about the role of community in your decision-making, how much power or preference you give to your own internal world, your conscience and the Spirit speaking into you, and the Scriptures, which of those three tends to sort of fall off the table My experience is that very few of us hold all three very well. Almost all of us usually emphasize, one, often our internal world. Two, we might then do the scriptures, but often there's so much confirmation bias in this (laughs) that we just make decisions according to our internal world and then use the scriptures to justify them. And then the third, community, We just announce. But what about you? If you were to sort of create a little hierarchy of your preference, which comes first for you? Because there's others of us who put community first. We discount everything internal. And actually, our internal is last. And we always feel forgotten whenever we're making these decisions. And we look back and we feel like, why did I do that? And often... We're outsourcing our choice to a dysfunctional community that wants to make the choice for us. So as you look at your choices, which of those three do you find kind of gets kicked to the curb most often? As I thought and prayed about it this week, one of the things I just realized is when we have an alignment as we discern, between our internal world, our community, and the scriptures, it actually takes care of almost all of the issues that happen here. Right? When we include community, right, we actually reality test our assumptions, and it helps with confirmation bias. Right? It actually also helps us with the spotlight effect when we narrow our options. But when we also pay attention to our internal world, we tend to pay attention to the emotions that shape our choices. Right? And the scriptures are a wonderful way for us to get God's perspective on the choices we're making. I want to invite the worship team up. Because I think one of the, you know, I realize like we talked about a lot of choice stuff and you're probably like, I don't even know what to do with this, you know? A lot of moving pieces. But my guess is there's at least two chunks of people in here. I think there's some of us right now that are looking back and we feel, like David, a little guilty about the choices we have made. And we're like, whoops, I didn't really do any of those things. And I just want to say to you, like one of the functions of worship is to come to a place like this And turn back to Jesus and say, you know what? Looking back, I kind of blew that. I'm sorry. This is kind of how we learn. This is how we grow. This is what Saul didn't do. He said, I'm sorry to David, and just kept doing his own thing. But now we have an opportunity in worship to look back and say, all right, God. Yeah, I rocked this decision. I blew this one. Help me. And then, too, I think there's others of us who are here, and we have like decisions coming up that literally are on our front steps. And we're kind of like, whoa, Tony, that's a lot to take in. And I just want to say this. Feel free to just, I don't know, let this stuff sort of sink in as the Spirit leads. So if you have a decision coming up, my invitation to you in worship is just allow the Holy Spirit to let you to spotlight for you (laughs) what to focus on. Maybe it's involving community in the decision that's coming up. Maybe it's taking more seriously the scriptures. Maybe it's paying more attention to what's going on inside of you. But as we enter into worship, we just have to remember, right? God in the end is in control. God in the end is bigger than us. And what we do in this place is say, all right, Jesus, you said the Holy Spirit would come dwell in us and teach us all things. All right, we're ready. Let the all things begin. So let's be a people today that just open our hands in worship to who God is and what he brings, whether we carry guilt or excitement, whether we're sort of overwhelmed or joyful. Let's invite you, uh, as I pray, just to, Be present to what the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Maybe it's choices. Maybe it's relationships. God, we just ask that in this space, you would guide us. God, we want to be a people that learn from you. We want to be a people who cast ourselves at your feet and say, God, I'm sorry. God, help me. God, thank you. Thank you for being here and walking with me despite my sin and brokenness. The ways that I just kind of do my confirmation bias, the ways that I just focus on so narrowly and have a hard time looking up. God, we want to be a people who worship you, people who follow you, people who submit our lives to you. God, may we be a people your will, your good and pleasant and beautiful will. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Wash us of guilt. Give us soft hearts. As we lean into the songs, I just invite you to let just the words of the song wash us. is here for the broken hearted. God is here for those who are struggling. God, we pray that your will would be ours, that your will would be on, done on earth as it is in heaven. If you trouble